0: Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. I'm also the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, which, quick reminder, airs every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on True TV. We got all new episodes for you for the rest of the year. You can also find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Now, on this podcast, I talk to researchers, academics, and experts from around the world of human knowledge about the work they do and why it is so fascinating and, dare I say, important. Today is a special one. We actually have two guests on today. They will be talking to me in unison. The first is Dr. Joanne Elmore, who appeared on the TV episode, Adam Ruins Hospitals, where she talked to us about mammograms. Now, the thing about mammograms is we all have sort of been told that mammograms are this no-brainer. You should go in as early as possible, as often as possible, because that's the way to stop breast cancer. And what recent research seems to have shown is that mammograms are a lot more complex of a testing mechanism than we think. There are actually a lot of downsides. and they're not quite as beneficial as we had hoped. Now that doesn't mean that they don't save lives. They do, but the issue is very complex and these are things that you should know before you go in and get one. That's what Joanne came on the TV show to talk about and that's what she's coming on this podcast to tell us about in more detail. Dr. Emmer is a professor of medicine and an adjunct professor of epidemiology at the University of Washington and an affiliate investigator with the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and the Group Health Research Institute. And along with her, she has brought Dr. Janie Lee onto the show. Janie, is an associate professor of radiology and the section chief of breast imaging at the University of Washington, and it is an actual radiologist. So we not only have Dr. Joanne Elmore's perspective, we have the perspective of an honest-to-goodness radiologist in the person of Dr. Janie Lee. I am so excited to have both Joanne and Janie join us today from Seattle. So let's get to the interview and start talking mammograms. Uh, well, Joanne and Janie, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come on the show. Our pleasure, yes. So I want to know if you could just start by introducing yourselves and to our audience and and say what you do and and the distinction between your uh, two professions.
1: Perfect. Well, this is Joanne Elmore. I'm an internist. I'm a physician. I see patients in an adult medicine clinic take care of everything from hypertension to diabetes to pap smears and talking with women about getting screening mammograms. And I'm the one that fills out all the referral forms to send them to get the
2: screening mammogram.
0: Got it. And Janie?
2: Uh, My name is Janie Lee, and I am a a breast imaging radiologist at the University of Washington. And so uh, we have our uh, clinic where we use um, all sorts of diagnostic tests to uh, look for breast cancer. We use mammography, ultrasound, and uh, MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. Um, and if anything needs to be biopsied, uh, we perform biopsies. And um, if breast cancer is diagnosed, we work with other doctors, surgeons and oncologists and radiation oncologists to use imaging to guide treatment.
0: Um, I'd love to just uh, quickly recap sort of the, the message that uh, you gave us on uh, the televised segment of the show um which is that people uh have been sort of told over the last couple decades that hey mammograms are super essential all women should get mammograms as often as possible as early as possible um etc uh and that it's this sort of like very very key test for uh stopping breast cancer early and you've sort of found through your research and through your experience as a doctor that it's more complex than that In, in what way Boy, where to start with that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know i I like to I like to make the topic as big as possible early on. Uh, <laughs> so start wherever you seem oh, to oh boy, okay, uh, let me start
1: with the big picture to say that mammography can and does save lives, and okay. it um, is a very important medical test. Unfortunately, for us, we're finding that the benefits are less than we had hoped for. And there actually are potential harms. You know, anything that we do in medicine and in life, there are potential harms. And because of this, it's a fine balance. And I want my patients to be informed and to make a decision that's right for them. And over the years, we have realized that um, we shouldn't perhaps start at, at such a young age, age 35. Uh, that's when they used to recommend that it start, and now they're saying perhaps in the 40s, and now some groups are saying in the 50s. And in other countries, they're starting sc- recommending screening in the 50s. Um, we used to say every year, and now they're saying perhaps every two years in some populations. And so it, it's a complicated topic And that's kind of my big picture summary. We can delve into some of the details that I'm sure you have questions about.
0: Sure. Well, yeah, let's talk about I mean, most people think that, you know, hey, if I take a test, it's just a screening. Uh, There's no harm in that. If, you know, there's something there, I want to know. What are the potential harms of just getting a screening exam? Well, let's start with. The fact that we're talking about
1: screening and not a diagnostic exam, because with screening exams, patients are healthy, they don't have any abnormalities, and we're looking for things that we could detect early and try to help patients. And there are diagnostic mammograms that we use very frequently in clinical practice, and that's when a, a patient comes to me and she has a breast lump and I order a diagnostic mammogram. So those are two different types of exams.
0: Right the the screening ones are the ones where it say uh, where you know you go in just sort of preventatively you have absolutely no you've detected no abnormalities yourself you feel fine and you go and you get it just to be sure and the diagnostic mammogram is the one where it says okay we've already found something there's already some evidence of some abnormality and we're going to diagno- we're going to uh, recommend that you do this and when you talk about the potential benefits and harms you're talking specifically about the screening type right yes
1: and we do lots of screening in medicine we do pap smear test uh, for cervical cancer screening we test for cholesterol we test blood pressure we do a lot of screening
0: Got it. Um and so what so what can be the the harms of, you know, getting those screening mammograms too early or too often?
1: Well, maybe we should step back and start with what's it like to get a mammogram? Sure. You know, women come in and you have to disrobe, take off your bra and your shirt and you have to lift up one breast, put it on top of a hard plate and then you take a second hard plate and you come down from the top and and squish the breast together. And I can tell you that you're not here in the studio with me, but Janie, our radiologist, is smiling at me. But, (laughs) you know, you basically do have to apply compression to the breast. It can be uncomfortable, but it's really transient. And most women, you know, they're willing to accept this. It's important Mm -hmm. because you want to not let the breast wiggle around a lot you want to sort of reduce the motion artifact you want to reduce the amount of radiation that you have to use on the test and so it is important but you know one of the potential harms is that it can be uncomfortable you know you can imagine someone taking your right testicle lifting it up putting it on a hard plate and squishing it with a second plate so that it won't move while they shoot the
0: x-rays yeah, I'm, ama- I'm imagining that yeah <laughs> okay good there, there is a reason okay, for so it. i think i've got i think i've got some i think i've got some picture of it and yeah so that's off the bat, something that I I don't want to do unless I have to. Uh, But if it was going to be beneficial for my health, then I would do it. You're right.
2: And I do want to explain just just a little bit. You know, uh, we do apply compression. Um, We do it for a good reason. You know, one of the things that it does is it minimizes the radiation that we need to take a good picture. And uh, and to um, explain what a routine mammogram is for those who haven't experienced one, um, we take two views of each breast and um, one view kind of essentially using the nipple as a, as a marker lets us see kind of the top and the bottom of the breast and then the other view lets us kind of see side to side right so closer to the uh, the, your, your, the middle um, and or or farther away, and that's sort of what when we see something. It helps us say, well, is it something we see on two views, which makes it more likely to be real? And if we do see something, where is it? Because now we can say, is it in the upper breast or the lower breast? Is it is it um, in towards the middle or in the inner or the outer? And so um, that helps us find uh, something when it needs to be brought back for further evaluation.
1: Now, Janie Janie mentioned radiation. And that's something we didn't really talk about on the show and patients always ask me about. Uh, I'm a internist. I see patients in the clinic. And, and I'm wondering, uh, Janie, what you have to say to patients about the amount of radiation exposure they're getting.
2: Sure. Um, The amount of radiation um, that we use to do a mammogram is, you know, we try and use uh, the lowest amount um, to get a good image. And uh, and a mammogram, actually, the exposures are relatively low compared to other diagnostic tests like a... A CAT scan, a CT scan. Um, and it's also, we also have to understand that there's radiation all around us. So there's sort of background radiation um, associated with where you live. So for instance, there's more radiation if you live at a higher altitude or a lower altitude. If you take a plane flight, you know, a cross-country plane flight um, is associated with radiation as well. So the amount that we use medically um, is usually there's a good reason for it. And we take precautions to use as little of it as possible.
0: But is the is there any risk associated with that uh, with that radiation overall? Or
1: that's a good question. Um, it's something that is hypothetical. We we do mm. think and acknowledge and know that there is a risk from radiation exposure, but it's hard for us to estimate. Um, we know from things like the Hiroshima bomb, people that live near the epicenter of that, they had a much higher rate of subsequent cancers. We know that when right. women are younger, starting. Mammography screening that they're at higher risk, um, and so how many cancers we're actually causing? We can't tell you exact numbers. We can't give good estimates. We think it's a low amount, but it, it's it's a potential risk.
0: Right? Is it? Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's 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 uh, sort of this uh, nebulous issue where you know even when you go to the airport and mm-hmm. you get uh, scanned by one of those scanning machines, people worry about the risk of radiation and. We're told that it's a very low amount um, and that we should be safe. And you can say, oh, it's it's similar to the amount of radiation you get in other XYZ normal scenario. But there is still some amount of radiation passing through you as a result of the
1: right. test. Right. What does a very low amount mean? Exactly.
0: Right. Uh, well, so let's move on to uh, the issue of once, you know, you've actually found something uh, via the mammogram and how variable that can that can be. Well, a mammogram
1: is a... Screening test, and they look for abnormalities. And if they find something, then they will obtain additional x rays. They may, um, and usually, if they find any abnormalities, it's easily taken care of with just additional mammogram x rays, maybe an ultrasound. It is much less likely that women have to go on to have a breast biopsy or any tissue taking. But what surprises people is how common getting this call back from the mammography facility is in the United States. And I thought you did a great job in your TV show explaining that it's about one out of 10 women that goes to get a mammogram, a screening mammogram. She'll get called back for additional testing. And she'll either get a letter in the mail or a telephone call. And the mammography facilities do a great job. um, And they're very sensitive and try to sort of help women through this. But I have a lot of women calling me very anxious about this. It's some women, it doesn't sit very well to hear, you know, dear Mrs. Smith, don't worry, but you might have breast cancer. We need you to have you come back for additional testing. And I think that the fact that you brought up how common it is will help people so that when they do go in to have a screening mammogram and they get this call or letter, they will realize, okay, that's just part of the experience.
2: And, and there are things that we can do to, uh, that we know we can do to minimize it. So one thing we can do to prepare patients is to say, you know, the first time you have a mammogram, it's much more likely um, that you might be asked to come back for another exam. But once you've come back a couple of times, and we can say, oh, um, you know, she's looked like that. She looked like that two years ago. So um, she hasn't changed. And so that's much less likely to be um, a breast cancer that we're worried about. And so we won't ask her to come back for that. And so, um, so one is sort of to to kind of know that your chances are higher on your first mammogram than when you come back later. And that if you go to a new facility, if you bring your old mammograms with you, um, that will also help the radiologists who are looking at the images and re- and reduce the chance of, of being asked to come back.
1: Now, you mentioned, uh, Janie, to have women bring their old mammograms with them. I think that's kind of hard for women to know how to do. I, I often tell my but, patients, yeah. try to go to the same facility because mm-hmm. then they'll have your old films for Comparison, and they'll be able to look at that little abnormality and know that, gee, it's been there for the last decade, and, and they'll be less likely to call you back.
2: That's one of the great things, actually, about digital imaging now, is actually when when women come into our clinic, we ask them for permission to obtain their prior mammograms. Um, if they've gone somewhere else, if they can remember where they had it, we can always call and say, you know, she's given us permission, and would you kind of beam them over to us? And that um, so that's much easier to do now than when we used to use um, films, actual films that you could hold in your hand.
0: Right. Um it's real it's funny because yeah that would never even occur to me as something you need to do. I mean, it's hard enough for me to figure out how to get my <laughs> eyeglasses prescription forwarded to the new glasses store, you know. Yeah. Uh it's it's always something that that is seems an opaque part of the process. Wait, how do I get these these records transferred? But yeah, I will say 1 in 10 women being called for additional screening, I mean, that's that's much higher than than uh, I would imagine most people think. I mean, again, we sort of imagine this is a test where oh, you go in and we can immediately tell you you know if you have breast cancer or not. But instead, it's it's uh, a much wider net being cast, and and if people aren't especially if people aren't emotionally prepared for that, that can be really stressful. If like oh no, I got the letter from the from the screening place,
1: right? And I. I- was surprised that uh, I work in a clinic with a lot of very well-educated staff and medical assistants and nurses, and they told me they weren't aware that one out of 10 women are called back. And then when I started talking with them about the fact that, well, this is one out of 10 on a single exam, but if you start screening in your 40s or 50s, you're going to have 10, 20 mammograms over your lifetime. And You know, sooner or later, your risk of having one of those callbacks is quite high. And when I studied this, we found that at least half of the women after a decade were called back for additional testing. So I think it helps women to know that this is just part of the screening process in the United States. The callback rate, the one out of 10 callback in the United States, is much higher than it is in other countries. Really? In other countries, Sweden and some of the European countries, they only call back two to three percent, whereas in the U.S. it's about ten percent.
0: That's uh, why do you why do you think that is? Do you have any any clue why that might be?
1: Janie and I are both shaking our heads. Um, I think that we're afraid of missing things <laughs> in the U.S. Mm. I think we really do care and we want to try, um, but some studies have shown that the actual cancer detection rate is about the same, and so. If you're calling back more people, but your cancer detection rate's about the same, we're not getting that extra bang for the buck that we had hoped. Um, Janie, why don't you add to this? Because it's a really complicated topic.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of things that go into the recall rate. So the, the recall rate, right, the proportion of women that we ask to come back is also related to cancer detection rate, right? Because our true positives are come out of the, uh, the group of women who are asked to come back. Um, so there are things that we know that contribute to it. So the number of mammograms each year the radiologist reads, um, the more you read per year, in general, the lower your callback rates are. Uh, they never go to zero, right? Because you know you want to detect cancers, but they are lower in people who are high volume um, and people who are subspecialists, like I am, who have t- uh, done additional voluntary training after radiology training. And also, if you have to take into account the screening intervals in Europe, you know, they are screening longer. And so if a cancer is developing, sometimes it's it's larger and easier to see if you wait two years or three years instead of every year. And, and that sort of has to do with sort of some of how how you prioritize, right? You know, do you want to reduce mortality from breast cancer? Do you want to reduce mortality from breast cancer and find cancers as soon as possible? Which is sort of what we have said here in this country. And you know, you just have to think a little bit. And, and as Joanne mentions as well, you know, we we live in a different society about what it means to find a cancer or not find a cancer on a mammogram. So it really is very complicated.
0: Right. That's that's really interesting, because now you're sort of taking it for me from the level of, you know, the decision that one woman might make to go to mammogram and what she might experience to the sort of more public health side, where you say we're doing mammograms on such and such a scale. This many people are getting called back. And what are our goals of this type of procedure? Um, On the one hand, it's really interesting. It depends on what you prioritize, because if you prioritize, as you say, reducing the amount of breast cancer mortality above all else, there could be knock-on effects of that uh, in terms of how you structure the program. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's also the idea, now that we're talking about it, where ideally it seems like you would want the callback rate to be as close as possible to the actual rate of Mm -hmm. breast cancer, right, Right. so that you're not giving so many women false positives because those have their own effects. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, one thing that's really interesting, too, uh, in terms of metrics is do you want to save lives, like the number of lives you want to save, or, or do you want to extend life by years? So if you want to say, mm-hmm. I want to save the greatest number of lives, then you'll really focus your screening on older women who have more cancer. Age, age is definitely a risk factor for cancer. But if you want to maximize the number of years, well, then actually you do want to include younger women because when you find a cancer in a younger woman, she lives for much longer longer Um, so it, it it's very complicated in a lot of ways because really what we want to do is both and so it's how do you find that right balance
0: well I'm here talking to Joanne Elmore and Dr. Janie Lee we will be back in just a moment so please stick around Mugs,
1: shirts, stickers, patches, tanks, and more are yours for the purchasing at MaxFunStore.com. Hey, you already love the podcasts, so why not take this to the next level and outfit your home and bod with our merch? MaxFunStore.com,
0: because if you have to wear a shirt, it should be one of ours. Well, welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to University of Washington doctors and professors, Joanne Elmore and Janie Lee. Well, let's let's keep going down the the rabbit hole of the different uh, results, you know, that can come out of um, screening mammograms. So, uh, we also talked on the show about uh, overdiagnosis. Could you uh, sort of explain that issue to us?
1: Well, we should, I think, start by. Describing how cancer is diagnosed, because uh, a few people watched the TV show and thought that we were saying that mammograms diagnose breast cancer, but mammograms are images and they diagnose abnormal areas on the images, and then that leads us to get more tests. And in order to diagnose breast cancer, we actually have to get tissue tissue. You have to stick a needle in or get a little uh, lump of tissue. And then that tissue is put on a glass slide, and another type of doctor, a pathology doctor, will interpret it under a microscope. And that's how cancer is diagnosed.
0: I see. Uh, And so overdiagnosis is, is that the phenomenon of someone being diagnosed with cancer when they don't actually have it? Or can you break that down for me?
1: Okay, great question. The word overdiagnosis... That's a tough word. And I don't know if Janie and I like that word and feel that it it actually works. And I actually thought you did a great job in the TV segment describing the topic. Basically, there are some women who are truly diagnosed with invasive breast cancer and with this thing called ductal carcinoma in situ. So they truly have breast cancer or in site you breast cancer, but yet it would never hurt them in their lifetime. And Mm. that is kind of hard to fathom. And I have to admit, when I went to med school years ago, nobody was even talking about this thing of overdiagnosis. And they've done studies, for example, women that die in car wrecks, and they cut through the breasts of these women that were healthy that died in a car accident. And they find invasive breast cancer in these women who died that didn't know they had it. So you know, many women walking around healthy may have breast cancer. We don't know what causes that breast cancer to kind of flip a switch and to become aggressive and to start causing bad things. So the word overdiagnosis, the, the women, they they truly have the cancer. The problem is we can't look the woman in the eye and say, you've got the kind of breast cancer that's never going to hurt you and you're probably going to die of heart disease in five years. And because of that, I think it's totally understandable that women want treatment and that the healthcare teams recommend treatment. Um, We can get into some of the subtleties of once you do have the tissue, we can get clues as to the aggressiveness of the tissue. Mm -hmm. But these women, they truly do have breast cancer. We know that there is overdiagnosis from many different types of scientific studies. We don't know what percentage it is. Some people say it's only two to three percent of all the women with breast cancer are overdiagnosed. Other people are saying it's 30 percent, 50 percent. Wow. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's um, you know, to even back up and give a little uh, more context, when we talk about the potential harms of screening, they are uh, related to both false positives, uh, which is when you have a biopsy and they tell you in the end it really was a false alarm. You know, it's a sm- it's smoke alarm uh, sort of in your house that's in your healthcare system um, that you didn't have cancer um, in the end. And then there's overdiagnosis, which is which Joanne has d- described very well. And so this is another one of these complex issues that is related to uh, patient and, and woman characteristics where a false positive is more likely in uh, younger women in, because age is a risk factor for breast cancer. And overdiagnosis is something that is more uh, frequent in older women, in part because, as Joanne says, the, the risk of dying of something else before this early cancer or slow-growing cancer um, could actually cause a breast cancer death um, is is higher. And so it's a really it's a big issue, Um one thing I did want to say was that um, there are things that we're doing to try and minimize over-treatment, and, um, and I think that's, that's also really important for women to know. Um, one of the things we're doing is uh, we're trying to figure out if, um, if we can provide less aggressive treatment. So one of the tests that I use, a breast imaging radiologist, uh, is MRI. And there's a really exciting uh, trial that looked at if you had ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a non-invasive cancer that is solely localized within the breast. It hasn't invaded. It's not thought to have potential to spread elsewhere in the body. Right now, it's treated with both surgery and radiation. And this trial looked at women with DCIS and said, well, let's let's get a mammogram. And if it looks like um, there's not a sign that there's additional invasive disease, it's really localized, these women were randomized to receive radiation or not receive radiation because the outcomes are so good, could we take our standard treatment and pull it back a little bit? Um, mm-hmm. So that's a really exciting trial where we're using something like imaging to help us predict um, how someone will do in the future and do less aggressive treatment. So... Um, It's going to take a couple of years for those results to come out, but I think it's really important that we're trying to study it and trying to minimize the harms of treating someone who might not benefit from that treatment.
0: Right. Um we sort of have this idea that hey, it's so important to catch cancer early and if you've gotten something that that you're told is cancer on a test, then you should treat that as aggressively as possible because that's the best way you have to uh, prolong your life but it it sounds like what we're learning is that sometimes when you receive that cancer diagnosis, that is a type of cancer that you don't you actually wouldn't want to treat that aggressively because it might be very slow growing and since those treatments can you know, reduce your quality of life to some degree, especially if they're aggressive. Uh, you could end up in the situation where you're treating something, you're treating a cancer more aggressively than than you should. And that knowledge is something that that we now need to go in having when we get these tests. That that hey, this diagnosis of cancer, uh, it could be it could be this more relatively harmless or less harmful type. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And I want to put this in the perspective of the poor women who then get that diagnosis. You know, if you're the woman and you get the screening and you have an abnormality, you get a biopsy of the tissue and then they tell you you have invasive breast cancer, we really can't give them complete assurance that they were one of those overdiagnosed cancers and it would never hurt them. And I I think that puts women in a real hard position. As Janie described, we're studying this. We hoped that we can do a better job going forward. Um, But I think it's understandable for women when you hear you have this. Um, I have many patients who don't even have invasive breast cancer. They just have some abnormal cells and they're so alarmed by it. They want to have a prophylactic
2: mastectomy absolutely and yeah. and I think it's because you know women have a lot to live for right they um, they have families they have dreams they have hopes and plans and and um, and when you have a cancer diagnosis you you want to you know you want to hit it and you want to hit it hard because you, you want to um, do the other things that are important to you in your life and so what I think is important to tell people about that is we are studying this and we're studying it in a in a rigorous way with um, with big trials so that we can really say this is a well Done, study we can trust the results. You know, another approach to uh, minimizing over treatment that follows over diagnosis is the use of genetic profiling of cancers. So, these are sort of mm. new tests that have come out and are uh, used to predict whether someone's risk of cancer is high or low. And sometimes uh, there are these trials that are looking at women who. Um, who might have been recommended for chemotherapy based on clinical characteristics. But if you look at their genetic profile, could we then reduce the number of women who would receive chemotherapy? So minimize the exposure to the harms, but still have good outcomes. And, um, and that's a, another very exciting area right now of use. And so, uh, you know, you might hear about something like an Oncotype DX test. That's one that's very common in the United States. That's what's used to help make those uh, chemotherapy decisions. And, and I think it's a step in the right direction.
0: That's what is fascinating about this is that it seems like the science is moving very, very quickly.
1: Well, <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> we're trying. Um, but right. but sometimes technology doesn't always help. Um, and let me give one example. Years ago, one of my clinic patients asked me, "You know, Dr. Elmore, why do I have to pay this extra $40 for this computer-aided detection thing on my screening mammogram? And I thought, that's a good question. This computer-aided detection thing is this computer program that They had developed, if you can teach a computer to play chess, you can teach a computer to help the radiologist. And so this computer-aided detection program was adding little arrows onto the images to help the radiologist so that they don't miss things. It was going to flag little abnormalities. And so we did studies of this, and we found that it actually wasn't helping like we had hoped, Hmm. and that it was you know, every single exam had like an average of four little arrows on it. And so it was leading to increased callbacks, increased false positives. And it, it, candidly, it might have even been falsely reassuring the radiologist. And so from my clinic patient's question, I studied this. And so I, I think that we... We have hopes of technology. We have technophilia in our society and that we think technology is always wonderful. But we do have to right. be careful. Um, but I, I say this as an example of sort of technology that hasn't been as helpful. But let me ask Janie to follow up because they are doing – they're trying to reduce the false positive And
2: they now have these new fancy machines called 3D Tomo. Me too. Uh, 3D tomosynthesis. You know, to follow up on the um, on the computer-aided detection uh, topic that you raised, I think um, I want people to be hopeful about science and the scientific process. You know, there was this hope that, you know, we had talked a little bit about some of the variab- the variables that go into a high recall rate and what can we do to reduce it and can we use computer-aided detection to help someone who um, uh, hasn't had the subspecialized training or is a lower volume um, reader, kind of read at the subspecialist level and so there was great hope for this, and then it turned out not to be um, as great as we thought it would be. But we know that because it was studied and it was studied rigorously. And so, um, so I'm hopeful in the in the process and in the kind of persistence of the process. Um, and when we turn our attention to tomosynthesis, yeah, I'm really excited about that. So um, tomosynthesis is also known as digital breast tomosynthesis or uh, 3D mammography. And it, uh, like uh, mammography, uses digital mammography, um, uses x-rays to obtain an image. And it's also uh, a, a refinement and an update in that you know the breast is the breast is a three dimensional organ, and a um, standard mammogram takes a three dimensional organ and projects it onto a two dimensional plane. And um, what the tomosynthesis exam allows us to do, or tomo as we uh, call it sometimes, um, lets us look. Um, within that volume of, of tissue um, at, at planes. And so sometimes when you take a three-dimensional organ and you project it onto a two-dimensional plane, you can have normal tissue that lies on top of each other and creates these shadows that makes us go, maybe that's something we ought to worry about. And um, mm. with this new 3D technology, um, things that are out of plane are, are blurred and out of focus. And so we see things better in each plane. And so it helps us better find the cancers that are there but not call back the uh, the, the Possible abnormalities that are not really there. So it's very exciting technology.
0: And is that technology that is being used, or is this just is still in testing and hasn't been rolled out to America's uh, screening facilities yet?
1: It's being rolled out. It's being studied. Some women have to pay additional cost for it. And when it first was rolled out, in addition to women having to pay extra for it, there was additional radiation exposure with it. So with every new technology, we need to be careful. And I'm just uh, appreciative of the radiologists and the scientists who are pushing, trying to help us reduce things like false positives.
0: Right. Um, It sounds like what it keeps coming back to is that we, you know, we have great hope for all these technologies and processes to help us save lives. But we really need to look in a clear eyed way at the overall benefits of these procedures. Um, You know, one of the things that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different recommendations uh, about mammograms. When we were writing our segment, we were, you know, really looking at them very carefully and saying, well, you know, there's so many different recommendations for when women get mammograms um, uh, that we don't, you know, it's hard to make a blanket statement about uh, exactly what is recommended overall, but it seemed like the recommendations were overall changing right over the last uh, a few years um, is that correct? And if so, why is that?
1: It is correct. Years ago, they were recommending women start at age 35 with a baseline mammogram and then age 40 every year. And over time, most organizations realize that breast cancer isn't as common as we had thought in the younger women. And the benefit is much more in older women, and I guess my definition of older changes with time, but uh, you know, above the age of 50s and the 50s and 60s, breast cancer is more common. So in general, most national groups are recommending starting later. Um, and in general, they're recommending in the 40s that we start talking with women about this. And it's important to me that we let women make this decision, Um, Some women, Mm -hmm. it's very important to them. They're nervous about it. They, They want to feel good, and they want to take sort of action. And it's important for them to start in the 40s. Others want to start in the 50s. I have some patients that don't want to have mammograms at all. And it's important to me that we let women choose. And the one thing I have noticed is that all of these recommendations are increasingly adding this little sentence about... Uh, informed decision-making is important, <laughs> and, um, but that's putting a lot of burden on the women to understand a very complicated topic that uh, I'm a, an internist, and so I, I spend time with women in clinic, and I'm taking care of their hypertension and diabetes and other things, and candidly, we are not always as prepared and available to help them navigate all this information.
2: Right. And one thing uh, I would add is that all these guideline societies are, are essentially looking at the same body of evidence, and they're coming up with slightly variable guidelines. Um, And you know, and and it's possible. I think it just shows us that that reasonable people can come to slightly different um, conclusions looking at the same available data. Um, I do want to highlight, though, the area of consensus because I think that's really important for our listeners and for women who are thinking about breast cancer screening. Is the area of consensus is for women who are between the ages of fifty to seventy four. Everyone's in agreement that they should have a mammogram, a screening mammogram, at least every two years. And then sort of, you know, that's where the variation starts to happen is that, you know, should you start earlier? Should you have your screening mammogram every one year, every two years? Um, should you have it after 74? These are things for women to talk to their doctors about. Um, but that's sort of the the clear area where everyone is uh, is in support. And um, And finally, just to add that these are recommendations for women who are at routine risk of breast cancer so if you um, have um, breast cancer risk factors um, this may or may not apply to you and this is another area to talk with your doctor about in terms of um, what is the best screening decision uh, for an individual
0: woman so they're all in consensus that the that that uh, older women it's uh, uh can be of great benefit but uh, it sounds like the recommendations have changed for younger women because we're learning more about the risks that come along with false positives, overdiagnosis and those issues. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Um, but uh, uh, one thing that we spoke about, uh, Joanne, on set that I or and I I think we we touch on this in the episode, but I, I would love to hear you talk about it in more detail. I think that, uh, you know, everyone's heard. Certainly I've heard since I've grown up that, hey, you you want to catch cancer very early and that that's your best chance to to stop it. Um, but what uh, what you've told me is that uh, our advances in, in treating cancer have become so much better that uh, we're now having more success uh, uh, treating it even when it's not caught early. Is that correct?
1: I think that's a, a fair statement in that uh, there really have been improvements in our treatment. Um, our treatment for breast cancer used to be really devastating and tough. Uh, they would remove quite a bit of tissue. Um, And now they have um, phenomenal treatments, surgical chemotherapy, and uh, women are doing
2: very well. Uh, Janie, what would you add to this? I would say that it's due to both, and that and it's and that it's been studied. There's sort of ev- evidence for this. What's really interesting is that over a decade ago, the National Cancer Institute said, you know, we're observing a reduction in breast cancer deaths, and what do we think that's related to? And so they actually, because you can't have this sort of counterfactual alternate reality where we go back and we have each woman go through two parallel lives what they actually commissioned was a group of researchers to do computer simulations and they they said we're going to give um, multiple groups the same data of inputs, create your models and see what the models say and but what the starting point was that the models had to recreate observable reality you know they had to sort of model what we see is the decline in breast cancer deaths over time. And then once they had done that they said, okay, now let's turn off screening and see what would would have been the projection. Let's turn off treatment and see what would be the projections. Let's turn off both of them. And um, and I know sometimes you read this, this, the results of a study and you go, that was kind of obvious. But the answer actually was it's both. It's actually due to both screening and treatment to get to the observed uh, reduction in breast cancer deaths that we're seeing, that we are both finding them earlier and treating them better
0: that's wonderful uh i'd like to talk a little bit about the the cost of these procedures um because obviously healthcare how expensive it is how to pay for it is a, such a, a such a big issue in america today but we've talked a lot about the uh the sort of health risks of overtreatment etc um but my understanding is there's uh, uh there's a huge cost component of that as well is there well
1: i guess i am pleased that insurance coverages, um, Medicare, that, that they mandate that screening mammography, if a woman wants it, it should be covered. But uh, I know that if women go to different facilities, they can have different charges. And there's some very fancy facilities that may add charges to it. Um, cost is something that we're slowly paying more attention to in health care. And I've, I've seen estimates that we are probably spending every year about $4 billion Dollars. That's with a B, four billion dollars, just on the false positives and overdiagnosis. That that really? has nothing to do with the screening exams and and sort of the saving of lives. And remember that I should come back to the fact that there there is a benefit to the screening mammography because we keep talking about all the potential harms. But um, you know that there is a potential benefit uh, to screening mammography. We hope that um, that the screening is detecting some early cancers and helping to lead to sort of easier treatment and saving a few lives. Uh, but there there is a cost. And indeed, these estimates of how much we're spending on all these false positive tests That is a lot. And when you have a a mammogram, a screening mammogram, and if one out of 10 is detecting an abnormality, that's a lot of women coming back for additional x-ray tests. And sometimes it's just a simple one-view diagnostic mammogram. Sometimes it's an ultrasound. Um, But these things add up. And in fact, um, the one thing that worries me about some of these podcasts is that the listeners may think, goodness, there's all these negative things I'm hearing them talk about, screening mammograms. Maybe I ought to just be getting an MRI scan, one of these fancy MRI scans of my breast. And those cost thousands and thousands of dollars just for one. Um, And so there are reasons that we are not pushing women to have other types of tests that have never been studied in the average risk population and that require intravenous contrast and all kinds of other things.
0: Wow. I, I wonder if... And look, this is a sensitive question um, because on our show, on our podcast, you know, one of the themes we come back to is is you know, oh, someone pushed for this or that thing to become a standard part of American culture because it benefited benefited them. You know, the classic, our original pieces that you know, the diamond industry pushed for engagement rings, right? Um, and I know that you know, in the healthcare industry, there's uh, uh, you know, there are often financial pressures at work, but it's much more complicated because you also have Professional and uh, honest, you know, doctors who are involved in that process as well. But I did want to ask: in in your view, uh, you know, is there any group or is there any uh, overall maybe diffuse financial pressure that causes us to rely on these tests too much? You know, is there uh, is that any component of it?
1: Well, let me start um, the answer to that. First of all, studies have shown that. These guideline groups, they are more likely to recommend a medical test if the members of the guideline committee benefit financially. You know, they they have studies have shown that. And there are some groups, such as the US Preventive Services Task Force, that their members are not conflicted, they make certain that they are screened very carefully and they do not have these financial ties. In addition, in the United States, our healthcare system is pretty complicated, and and we also have this this one issue of medical malpractice. And for many years, the number one cause of a medical malpractice allegation has been failure to detect cancer. And so breast cancer is one of those big ticket items. Um, so I think it's a it's a great question. It's complicated. I don't think there's an easy answer. And at this point, I'm going to turf things over to our radiologist and ask Janie, what is your answer to <laughs> yes. that question? Pass the Thank buck. you. Thank you. I'm so
2: glad to have the opportunity um, to um, to address this because I, I think there is. You know, there there is a perception that as radiologists, we are paid every time someone comes in for a mammogram, and so therefore, we are. You know looked at as biased in terms of supporting it and and I would say this is sort of an example of, of how having me and Joanne here together is um, really important because I would say that it's 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 not about making you know an extra dollar on the margin it's sort of knowing that we have this tool that is, fast, non-invasive, relatively inexpensive, although it adds up over time, um, that has been shown to save lives. And we want to use it. We want to help women um, live the lives they want to have and be healthy and, and live a long time. And so when it seems like there are efforts to reduce access to it, there can be um outcry about it. So I, I think it's more we believe in what we do. Um, if there's any kind of bias, it's because we believe in what we do. Um, um, I would I would disagree a little bit with Joanne about the United States preventative task force not having radiologists because they might be so biased in favor of it. Because I feel like by excluding a certain perspective you, you don't get to hear it. You know, I would love to see someone um, I would love to see experts regardless of their field sort of be able to weigh in on the specific topics. So I would love to see that change over time. And and you know like I said I'm hopeful in the process. So you know maybe not this round but um, maybe the next round. And and to get back to our discussion about just Costs in general, you know, when you look at sort of in the United States, what we spend on healthcare, and then you look at what we get in terms of health, we frankly don't get as much as some of our our peer countries in Europe and Asia and around the world, and um, that's that. We really have to think about that, right? Because. Why Why is that? Is it because we don't have advanced technology? No. Um, is it because we don't have advanced knowledge? Well, no, right? You know, you look at the trials that are being conducted. I think it has to do with... Well, how are we deciding to use the healthcare resources that we have? Um and that's that's part of why we're having this whole discussion in the first place, right? Is can we use this test that we believe in and we know that works? Can we use it better? And how do we do that? And how do we partner with that with each other um and with our and with the women who who we care for?
0: Right. That's what makes healthcare so difficult. You know, in our episode on uh, you know, on the hospital, we didn't uh you know we we didn't make an attempt to describe why exactly why healthcare is so expensive in america we uh because there are so many inputs to the system you know um uh there's uh how it's paid for there's the uh you know there's there's possible over there's um I, the the idea that you raise about malpractice uh, being uh, an issue that that uh, uh, in order to avoid a cost uh, associated with being sued for malpractice, they might you know order additional tests, et cetera. Um, there's so many <laughs> there's so many good and bad reasons uh, uh, that go into why it's so expensive and why our outcomes aren't better we We tried to focus on, you know, okay, we'll tell the story of the charge master, et cetera but, uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I guess I didn't I guess I don't know what I'm leading to there. Uh, uh, just that it's, it's incredibly complicated. It complicated you're
1: pointing out the obvious, but it's so important, and it is scary how much. Healthcare cost. Um, we're talking about screening mammograms, but I was out of town recently, and one of my patients called up, and she had a breast lump, and so she came into clinic, and they didn't know her as well as I do, and they jumped to get all kinds of extra testing, a diagnostic mammogram, she got a biopsy, she had the pathology, she had the visit with the surgeon, and it was not breast cancer, but her bill was around $10,000. And this is a woman mm. that is working two jobs. She, she doesn't have medical insurance. And so we do need to be cognizant and we need to be careful.
0: So I, I'd like to, you know, speaking of, of a patient coming in, um, I would, uh, I'd love to sort of close with this um, uh, because we talked a lot about, you know, looking at uh, how successful mammograms are from a sort of bird's eye view uh, and, you know, what these major recommendations are, you know, for what like whole populations of women at certain ages should do, et cetera. Um, I'd like to know, uh, Joanna, what, what do you, uh, when a, when a woman comes into your office and, and is worried about, uh, breast cancer and, and says, uh, you know, okay, you say I should do what's right for me. How do I figure out what's right for me? You know, what do you, mm-hmm. what, what do you tell her if you can give a little bit of that sort of overall advice to our podcast audience?
1: All right. Well, let me start by saying a lot of women come in asking me, shouldn't I be performing a breast self-exam? And we haven't even talked about that. Mm -hmm. The whole conversation has been about mammograms and x-rays. But years ago, we used to tell women every single month around the same time each month, examine your breast, palpate them. And I had a lot of patients that would feel guilty if they weren't doing that. Um, And they also would try to do an exam and they'd feel a lot of lumps and bumps and get really anxious and come in. And they have since studied breast self exam and they the scientific evidence now is against recommending breast self exam. Really? But I want to add that you know, I'm happy that I'm not making women feel guilty you know for not doing it, but I actually think it's important for women to understand the contour of their own bodies and their breast because a lot of the breast cancers in the U.S. are still detected by women themselves, not by screening mammograms. And so, I want a woman to kind of have a general sense that, gee, there's this rock hard lump. Uh, so, I have a lot of patients that ask me about breast self-exam, and I'll do a little bit of education about that to start with.
0: So, you'd say, don't don't put yourself on a regimen. Don't worry that you have to be do it doing it very strongly exactly once a month, but but be aware if there are changes in your body and sort of touch touch yourself regularly, if I can. No, really no, quickly. don't feel the need
1: to touch yourself regularly unless you really want okay. to. Uh, <laughs> okay. But... Um, it's hard because years ago they truly every time a woman bought a pair of nylons, it came with instructions in big bold font with big picture of a woman palpating her own breasts, and wow. um, every time you'd go to the health club in the shower stalls, they had these things hanging up telling the women, you know, you need to examine your breast. And there was a lot of anxiety. And they they have done a couple of large randomized clinical studies. Uh, they had a big one in China, and it, it they found that it wasn't saving lives like we had wanted. It was leading to more Mm. false positives. But I do think it's helpful for women to get a sense of what's normal and what's not normal. I sometimes, if they are worried about breast cancer, I'll do a little bit of education. Things like I have them take their index finger, touch the tip of their nose, and then touch the bridge of their nose. And the tip of your nose is real spongy and the bridge is kind of rock hard. And I try to get them to get a sense of what different parts of the breast and what suspicious things that might be much harder uh, would feel like.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, and then uh, uh, beyond that, what is what advice do you give about, uh, about mammograms and about uh, breast cancer in general? Okay.
1: Um, then women sometimes come to me and say, well, aren't you going to do a breast exam um, as a doctor? And we used to recommend that. Uh, and we found that it um, really hasn't been as well studied as mammograms. They're not as accurate. And in fact, the few studies of this is clinicians and well-trained nurses doing the breast exams. In order for them to be really good quality, the the doctor had to palpate and examine a single breast for probably 5 to 10 minutes. And that's each, really? yeah, that's each breast. So you can imagine that patients would wonder what I was doing if I spent 5 to 10 uh, minutes per breast. Um, so sure. we no longer have national guidelines recommending that the clinicians perform breast exams on our patients. If a patient comes in with a lump or a concern, then we do an exam. And some some patients have wondered why we're stopping doing those breast exams. And it's because the quality wasn't as good and, and there was no data showing that it was saving lives.
0: Got it. Wow, that's that, that's really that's really startling to me. Um, cool. And then and then what next? Oh. <laughs> well, now we're on to mammography, and
1: um, I just want women to educate themselves and to decide for themselves how they want to engage with screening mammography. And the the key is that there's no wrong choice. I just want women to be informed. You know, there is a benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the benefit is more in, and I won't use the word older age group, I'm going to say in the 50s and 60s, um, mm-hmm. and that I want women to make a decision that's right for them.
2: And what I would add to that is uh, is you know is to talk with uh, with your doctors, your your doctors like Joanne, and come up with a plan that works for you. And once you start it, whenever you choose to do so, come back regularly. You know, uh, health uh, health is unfortunately one of those things where you can't just do it once. You can't just take a pill. You can't exercise just once and be healthy. You can't eat a salad just once. And and mammography is like that too. You know, you can't just have one neck negative mammogram and and say, okay, I'm cancer free forever um it works okay. it works when you come back regularly so figure out you know a plan that's going to work for you um and then and then come back regularly because that's how it works best
0: well l- let me ask this that that's wonderful advice um, but uh, if i could drill down a little more when when you say someone should figure out you know a plan that works for them or, or decide what's right for them well we've talked a lot about about you know I think we've done a good job of the uh, information part about how okay there you know there are these risks of false positives and and overdiagnoses. On the other hand, uh, mammograms can't save lives. How do you recommend people go about thinking about how to weigh those costs and benefits? You know, um, uh, yeah.
1: Well, everybody has different values, and
0: mm. maybe
1: it's one reason why I love the practice of of medicine and I love being a doctor because every patient is different. And what's important to one patient may be different to a second one. There may be some patients that have a, a family history of breast cancer, or they may be really anxious because their best friend was just diagnosed with breast cancer. They may be aware of false positives, but say, you know, that would not bother me. I, I know totally about it. You've educated me. I, I want to do everything. And so I it, it is hard um, how to help all of our patients make decisions that are right for them. And I actually have to say that, sadly, we doctors, I wish we could do a better job. Um, I really yeah. appreciate your covering mammography and breast cancer screening in your TV show and this podcast, because just like Khan Academy is flipping education and, and getting students educated outside of the classroom, I want my patients to come to clinic with a little bit more knowledge. Um, But there's also a lot of bad information out there as well. And so I appreciate your being evidence-based and trying to be balanced.
0: Thank you. Uh, well, I'm. Uh, you know, that's our. That, that's that's all that we can hope to do. So I, I appreciate that. Um, I do love that you talk about values, though, because um, you know when I spoke with uh, a few podcasts back, uh, Bud Hamas from uh, who's uh, you know covers um, end of life care and and helps people uh, make decisions about you know what the best thing is to do at the end of uh, you know towards the end of their lives. What he really wonderfully brings to the discussion is this idea of values of of uh, you know thinking about okay what's important to me uh, what will be important to me at that time in my life you know how how do I sort of you know want that you know, part of the story of my life to go. Um, and that's, I feel like that's something that we often forget to do when we're making medical decisions, you know, that we, we think only about sort of trying to make the right decision or, or optimize the outcome in, from a, you know, I don't know, clinical perspective. And, and we sometimes forget to have that discussion about, about what's, what's important to me, you know, is it more important to me to have, known I've done every possible thing, or is it more important to me to uh, maybe forego disco- the discomfort of, of a treatment? Or et cetera. I, I, I don't know. I, I really appreciated you saying that.
1: Why, thank you. And what one patient values, other patients may not. And it may be the opposite of what the doctor values uh, and what a patient values may change over time.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that too. Right. I think, you know, really what, it, what business are we in? Are we in the business of imaging? Are we in the business of cancer detection? Really what it is, is we're about healthy, helping people live healthy lives and, and what that means to each person is, is different. And so it is kind of a messy conversation and I wish we could give you three questions that you could take home and talk to your doctor about, but it really is sort of what's important to you and how can we as your doctors help you get there?
0: Right. Well, that's, I, I think that's a, a, a wonderful note to, to end on, unless you uh, either of you have anything else that you'd like to add to the discussion.
1: No, but thank you again for covering. This is a, a challenging topic, and uh, we appreciate your attention to detail.
2: Yes,
0: thank you. Well, let me thank Joanne and Jamie one more time for coming on the show, and thank you to you folks for listening. That was it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in then. Our producer is Sharon Morris, and if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about the podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I don't care what podcast app you use. But subscribe to us on it if you like this. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Again, Adam Ruins Everything is back every Tuesday night on True TV at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. You can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash adamruinseverything. And don't you guys say it with me, the Watch True TV app. Oh, you can find it on the app stores wherever your apps are sold. Thank you guys so much, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Uh, Bye-bye. Maximumfun.org Comedy and culture.